Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. So glad you could join me this week uh, for a breakdown of the 2022 NFL Draft. Really interesting, compelling NFL Draft. And we will get into it and break down an awful lot with this draft with my friend Paul Burmeister from NBC Sports. Some of the things we're going to be discussing this week in the pod, uh, I think one of the oddest First overall picks in a long time, just from an anonymity standpoint. Uh, the draft just seemed to uh, just really gloss over the first pick in the draft. Uh, Trayvon Walker, the Jacksonville Jaguars. I'm going to tell you why I'm overjoyed for the downtrodden fans of the Detroit Lions. Uh, I agree with the rest of the draft, the mocking draft world that the Giants and the Jets both did well. It was a great weekend for the football fans in the greater New York area. Uh, why in the world did the Packers not take a receiver in the first round? We're going to go over that. Uh, we'll talk about the bounty for the Philadelphia Eagles in getting a couple of players, three players actually, that they believe will help the Eagles, uh, help them right away. Uh, and... We're also going to discuss the my time in the fourth round uh, with the Baltimore Ravens. I had a really cool experience watching the Ravens speed draft. They went through six uh, draft picks, the most in the last 50 years in any round in the NFL. And I think uh, the one other thing that I think will get into that, you know, that sometimes I'm always really hesitant because I don't do this for a living. The NFL people do it for a living. Sometimes when you question picks, I mean, you've had people living with it for three or four months. I just watch a pick being made like Cole Strange of the Patriots, and I say, what a dumb pick that was. And I'm sure Bill Belichick, who just might know more football than I do, uh, has some reasons for that, and we'll see how that one goes. But that's one of the odd parts of this time of year in the NFL. You've got people like us questioning what NFL teams are doing. A, it's our job, but B, there isn't going to be a final answer for the next two or three years. 
Anyway, I'm joined now by Paul Burmeister. Paul, just curious, your overriding big takeaway from the draft uh, as you witnessed it over the weekend. Well, in this moment here, Peter, as you're talking about Cole Strange uh, to the Patriots, I was in an airport this weekend and I walked by. I was racing to one gate. I took a peek at one and said Chattanooga. And I'm like, man, it's crazy what the draft can do. All I could think about was Cole Strange for the rest of that four or five gate walk yeah. down to where I was headed. But um, I, I guess, you know, watching it on Thursday nights at a draft party with a bunch of work friends, it was it's always exciting for those of us who were kind of draft nerds. But it was kind of name after name of like not real sexy picks. I mean, when, when the quarterbacks aren't a part of it, you can love the draft as much as you want and love the roster building and all that. But when when there are not quarterbacks involved, when there aren't running backs involved, it, it does lack some punch. So I would watch every minute of it all over again. Uh, I can say that in one breath and the next. I, I certainly hope next year's and the years after involve a lot more like high level quarterback offensive splash kind of interest that, that this one just didn't have at the top. So I want to start right at the top, Paul, and I'm, I'm just curious what your thought was. And I know that you and I probably, uh, certainly me, I mean, I don't spend a lot of time watching tape on these guys. And so in many ways it's unfair, but I thought what was really odd about this draft, one of the odd things is that the glitz and glamour of Las Vegas and, and all the weird stuff that happened during the course of the draft, uh, just from a glitz standpoint. And here is the first pick in the draft, Trayvon Walker, unassuming guy, quiet guy with his family at home in his living room in Georgia. The pick is made. He's excited. They show the draft room. Everybody's happy and shaking hands. And then I, I bet it was like 45 seconds, maybe a minute. And then they just moved on. They showed a couple of highlights and they just moved on. And I just don't remember a time in the draft where the first pick was really so anonymous. Maybe that was just me, but how did you see uh, the non-hype or, or, you know, that aspect of Trayvon Walker? The one, the one part that was kind of a, a headline and a real attraction coming into this first round, Peter, especially at number one, the weeks and a lot of the days leading up was, uh, it was unknown. Nobody knew what was going to happen at number one. And even though we knew it wasn't going to be uh, a quarterback, there was, hey, I wonder what it's going to be. And that had a certain level of an attraction and allure. And it kind of went away in the hours leading up to the draft. It was known that Trayvon Walker was going to go. And then it's like, what do we know about this player? And I was trying to think of ways to put it into perspective. But if you back up to the National College Football semifinal uh, in, in January and took that Michigan against Georgia game and said, okay, there's a future first overall pick on the field right now, who would have said Trayvon Walker? Or if you would have taken a bet and said, okay, the number one pick is on this field. Would you take Aiden Hutchinson or would you bet on the field? And I, I don't know who would have bet on the field. So um, it, it's a player right. that even though we knew it was probably going to be him, people didn't know a lot about him. And you can't overlook the fact that it was Jacksonville. If it was Dallas making this selection, if it was Green Bay making this selection, I think it would have garnered a lot more attention. But because it was Jacksonville, 
second year in a row. I, I think that also had a lot to do with the fact that it's like, okay, there's the pick. What's next? I think one of the other things, and this was pointed out to me uh, along my trail over the weekend uh, by one NFL general manager, this this was a pick that was not really popular among the GM fraternity in terms of, you know, people looking at this and what would you have done if you were in Trent Baalke's shoes uh, with the Jaguars. And he just wasn't that productive a player. He averaged one sack per four games uh, while at Georgia. And while some people would say, well, you know, he didn't play every snap, he didn't do it. I mean, what I would probably say is that, look, he he had a tremendous supporting cast. And so he couldn't be single blocked a lot of times. Or I, he had to be single blocked a lot of times because there were so many other great players on that defense. Look, time will tell whether that's going to pan out or not. All I know is that for his entire career at Georgia, he's never had the spotlight on him. And now he's going to have the hot, white-hot spotlight of being the first pick in the draft. And, you know, you get six sacks a year, that's not good enough. You better, you better, you know, ratchet up your production. And so we'll see what happens. And again, I hate sitting here saying I thought it was a dumb pick because I don't think it's a dumb pick. I just think that there is going to be a tremendous amount of pressure on Trayvon Walker to be a great player when he made some plays in college, some great plays, but he was a cog in the wheel on a great defense. And now he's going to ask to be an NFL superstar. That is a big, big ask. So let's transition to the second pick. What I thought was really interesting here is that, and I heard this uh, on Friday, that the Lions just put their pick in right away. And, you know, the Lions basically, you know, you've got all this time. You've got 15 minutes now, or is it 10? I forget. I, I, that's terrible. I should know that. But you've got all this time to make your pick at the top of the draft. And the Lions didn't take any time at all. They just put their pick in. And the, the NFL said, whoa, 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 whoa hold on, we got a TV show to run here. And so, and the Lions basically said, we don't care. This is our guy. We, we just, we want to get it on record. We're not changing our mind. So I thought that was really cool. And I also heard, what I love about this pick, Paul, you know how I don't care what anybody says. I really don't. Over the years, there have been many people who have, you know, been drafted by Jacksonville at number one or Houston at number three or Detroit or Cleveland, like perennial uh, high picks in the draft, perennial losing records with these franchises. What I loved about this was the night before the draft, one of Aiden Hutchinson's sisters said, please, please, please let it be Detroit. Now, who says that? And for whatever reason, Aiden Hutchinson is from the Detroit area, so the family you know, wanted him to stay home, and I get that. But Aiden Hutchinson wanted to go to Detroit too. He wants to turn around the Lions. 
So the fact that you get Aiden Hutchinson and then have that big trade-up to get Jamison Williams, I thought it was a great day for the Lions, not just the Lions football team, but for people to look at the Lions in a different light. Oh, the guy who was probably, if, if 32 general managers were polled, Aiden Hutchinson would have been the first pick in the draft by a majority of them. And he really wants to go to Detroit. He's thrilled not to be the first pick because it allows him to go to Detroit. I just thought that was cool. I think it's really cool, Peter, when you enter kind of a you enter sort of a collegiate type feel. I know they're selecting college players, but collegiate in the sense that uh, there's some real sentiment, there's some real emotion there. Somebody wanting to go to that school. I thought that was fun as well. And let's not forget what Cincinnati did to this entire thing too. A team like, as you mentioned, a perennial team picking at the top. And I know they didn't go quarterback in Detroit, but they went from someone no one would say would be say would be any good to the Super Bowl and almost winning the Super Bowl. So there's a different kind of feeling around these kind of teams as well, at least for the next couple of years, I think, when I watch, because I've got the Bengals in mind. So that there's a real sense of excitement for these teams that have been really poor. And also, with their selection, you mentioned trading up in the first round to get Jamison Williams. I also look at this one kind of like, Peter, everyone's looking at the Rams for their example. And they started this being aggressive, yeah. giving up picks. We're going to go get our guy. And we've seen it at receiver in this offseason. And now the Lions, this team that's been pretty insignificant recently, they joined that club. They're aggressive, too. You know what? We're going to go get this big playmaker as well. We're going to give up some draft assets, and we're going to get someone exciting and productive for our team, just like all these other teams that have been doing it. And that may not be the initial feeling that people get when they watch, but I thought of that uh, when I thought of the Lions fans that, you know, maybe they're feeling a part of this group as well, that, hey, our team has taken note, and we're part of this game as well. So, Paul, living in the New York area as I have for most of my professional life, really almost all the years since 1985. Um, I have gotten used to fans collectively booing the Jets and the Giants on draft day. And in this particular case, I do not remember a year, I mean ever, where the draft fortunes of both teams in the draft, New York, both New York franchises, New Jersey franchises, <laughs> uh, w- that people went wild for them. And I think the reason why they went wild is that collectively, for most draft experts, there were five players picked by the Giants and Jets, and almost everybody had all five of those players you know, among ranked among the top 15. And so the Giants obviously get Kayvon Thibodeau, uh, the pass rusher from Oregon, and Evan Neal, uh, the tackle, and could be a guard from Alabama. And the Jets get Sauce Gardner, Garrett Wilson, the wide receiver, and uh, Jermaine Johnson, the edge rusher. The one thing I guess I would say, and I wrote this in my column, is that, look, you know, it is great to fortify the roster and everything, but you're never going to be really, really good until your quarterback is good. And we just don't know about either quarterback yet. But each team 
did everything it could to surround that quarterback with competent and and actually standout players to actually give him a chance. Let's go one at a time, Paul. Give me your thoughts on what the Jets did. Uh, the Jets, I mean, conceptually, and we'll see how these players play out, Gator, obviously, but I love the thought process. I, I, I love the idea of what they did for Zach Wilson. They had all these picks uh, in the first few rounds. Now, after trading them, they didn't end up with as many. But in the end, what did they do for Zach Wilson? First-round wide receiver, second-round running back, third-round tight end. So if this team's going yeah. anywhere in the future, they've got to give some things to all this talent that Zach Wilson has. So it wasn't all they did, but going with those skill position players for Zach Wilson in the first three rounds, I thought that was awesome. And on top of that, you can say four picks in the top 36, corner edge rusher, most important positions on defense in the abstract, and wide receiver and running back. So I think you and I talked about this in, in the days leading up to the draft on your podcast, Peter, but I was really watching the Jets because of those four picks in the top 40. I think it might have been five at one point, but they end up with four. Edge rusher, corner, receiver, running back. Love the thought process. Love the idea of what they did. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think they did everything they could. It was a great day for Joe Douglas. You know, I wrote this in my column this week that uh, the Giants, I think, had some reservations near the end about Kayvon Thibodeau. He's, he's seen as a real me guy by a lot of general managers in the league. And so on five days before the draft, on the Saturday before the draft, uh, the general manager of the Giants, Joe Shane, wanted to get to the bottom of a lot of these things. He had a half-hour Zoom call with uh, Kayvon Thibodeau and talked to him about everything. And that got, I think, got Joe Shane a lot more comfortable with exactly who Kayvon Thibodeau was, is, and he got a lot more comfortable with the prospect of picking him. Look, the other pick right here, Evan Neal, he started at three positions at the highest level of college football. Uh, I think he's pretty safe. So to me, I like what the Giants did. They had to get somebody for their offensive line. And not only did they have to get somebody for their line, they had their choice of two of the top three guys. And then following that, to be able to get Kayvon Thibodeau, to me, I don't even think he's a boomer bust player. I think he's a boom or average player. I don't think he's going to be a bust. Uh, but I think taking a chance on Kayvon Thibodeau uh, is something that I think is a smart thing to do because of the potential that he has. And I think these two picks, five and seven, have to be grouped together when you think about their whatever their mindset was at number five because you can take a swing at five if you feel good about what you're getting at seven. So, I mean, it, it was a bit of a risky pick. They're all risky, but for a lot of the reasons we've discussed, that Thibodeau pick, I think, certainly counts as a risky one. So that's number one. Number two, think about how much that draft room changed at the New York Giants when the Texans did go corner with Stingley. So that means picks one through four, all defense. The Giants knew at five and seven, they have to get an offensive lineman. They have to get a tackle for Daniel Jones. So, one through four, all defense, that changes how risky they can be at five. They know if they love two tackles, 
even if Carolina took one at six, they'd get somebody they felt great about at tackle at seven. So the way it played out one through four and a little bit of a surprise that it was all defense, I think allowed them to know they're getting a, a tackle they love at seven. We can roll the dice here a little bit at five. Yeah, I think it's, I think what they did was logical in that way. You know, you can take any tackle you want in this draft, but then risk losing Kayvon Thibodeau or not get every, any tackle you wanted, uh, but get Kayvon Thibodeau. And I thought that was really a smart thing. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. There's no place like the movie theater. The smell of fresh popcorn welcomes you to a full body experience while candies and sodas compete for your attention. Pick me! Pick me! Hoping to join you in the best seats you've reserved on Fandango. It's where movie lovers buy tickets, pick seats, and double up on rewards points all online. All that's left is to walk in, snack up, and sit back. Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. I have never seen anything like this. How about that? An Olympics unlike any other. The Paris Olympics. This summer on NBC and streaming on Peacock. Paul, let's move on to uh, one thing that is, I think, is is a hard topic to quantify right now, whether the Green Bay Packers made a mistake or whether they did not. And And look, I will fall on the side right now of a team that made a mistake in this draft. They had two picks in the first, 22 and 28. They had two picks in the second in the 50s. What they chose to do is to take two defensive players, front seven players, uh, in the first round, and then in the second round, trade up using both of their second round picks to trade up to be able to take Christian Watson, the receiver from North Dakota State. Now, many people had Christian Watson... uh, out of the first round of this draft. I would say the majority of people thought he was a second-round pick. Now, Chris Sims had him very highly rated, and I respect Chris. A lot of people had him. I put him in my mock draft late in the first round to the Kansas City Chiefs as the seventh wide receiver pick. Be that as it may, I guess my logic here is that if the Green Bay Packers loved one of the good receivers in the draft. And look, I know that Green Bay was talking to teams appreciably higher in the round about moving up. And it's clear, who would they be moving up for? I would think it's clear they'd be moving up for a wide receiver. And so they sat by and watched Detroit go up from 32 to 12 to take Jamison Williams. 
And the Packers, who were at 22, I believe could have uh, could have had a deal to trade from 22 to 10 or 11 and get in position to take Chris Olave or one of the receivers in this draft who I think would have... Uh, it, it was clear that there was a while that they were discussing moving up to get one of the wide receivers in this draft, okay? They didn't do it. And my whole thought is you've got Aaron Rodgers for one, two, maybe three more years. We don't know. And you need a a wide receiver who's going to hit the ground running this year. You got to have him ready, fully integrated in your offense by Labor Day because he's got to play opening game of the season and be a factor for your team. Now, they're going to gamble that uh, Christian Watson is going to be that guy. He well may be, but the fact is he's a North Dakota State receiver. It's going to be a big jump to play in the NFL period and then to play with Aaron Rodgers. So had I been Brian Gutekunst, the general manager of the Packers, I definitely would have packaged up a lot of my draft capital and moved up to get a more pro-ready day one uh, starter impact player like Chris Olave. Yeah, I, I had the reaction that I think a lot of people did. I know the the work people, uh, the colleagues I was with at the draft party on Thursday night for the first round all had a similar reaction when Green Bay went front seven defense with their first first-round pick. It was kind of a, a light shake of the head. When they did it again with their second first-round pick, it was a more uh, severe reaction than that. Listen, you, you mentioned the fact that Aaron Rodgers is getting older. And, I mean, to me, that's the where it starts. Teams draft, they scheme their offseason to get in this realistic window of, can we win it this year? Green Bay is in one of those windows, but not for much longer. And they're in it because of Aaron Rodgers at the top of the list. So using those two picks to go up and get someone made all the sense in the world. And you also can't ignore what they lost. I mean, Devontae Adams was the 1A to Aaron Rodgers. So small right. window that's running out. And the, the, the best receiver in the game, or at least the most productive last year, out the window. So there's a lot of reasons to look at this like it wasn't the right thing to do. If you want to be positive and say, I don't mind what they did in the first round, you believe in Christian Watson, the second rounder. And then you also look at the total package of the Packers and say, they won a whole lot more than they lost last year. They're in this window of a team that could win because the defense is really good too. The offense didn't have to score 30 points a game to win. And they just strengthened the top 10 defense with a D lineman and a linebacker. It's not my first reaction, but I don't think it's crazy town to go over and, and explain why it is a pick. It is two picks that make sense for the entire team. When you look at how that entire team offense defense combined in Green Bay won a lot of games last year. Tell you what, tremendous pressure on Aaron Rodgers. Tremendous pressure on Aaron Rodgers because he's going to have to get a uh, you know a one double A receiver ready to play right away. And you're going to have to do it with a very much uh, a, a lower level of depth at receiver than you had a year ago. And, and again, look, it's not over. Maybe the Packers can make a trade for, uh, you know, a lesser receiver who knows, but, Man, you're asking Aaron Rodgers to do a lot. You always ask him to do a lot. 
I would have handled it differently if I were the Packers. Paul, um, you know, on Thursday night, I was in Philadelphia. I went to see the Green Bay or the Philadelphia Eagles, and I didn't have any specific plan. I didn't really think they were going to do anything. In fact, uh, before I went there, Howie Roseman basically communicated with me and said, uh, I wouldn't expect much. Don't, don't expect a lot. Are you sure you want to come? And, uh, and I look, I didn't, I, I didn't know what was going to happen, but I just trust Howie Roseman that if there's a deal to be made or news to be made, he's got a good chance to make it. So, I was shocked like everybody else when I heard about the A.J. Brown trade. I didn't know anything about it. <clears throat> and here's the two interesting things about the trade. They agreed to the terms of the deal. Basically, the 18th pick in the draft and a third-round pick for A.J. Brown. But the deal was contingent on getting a contract with A.J. Brown before the pick came up before the 18th pick came up. So it turned out to be a great strategic thing that Howie Roseman could have in his pocket because he didn't start talking to the agents for A.J. Brown about a new contract. And he said we until about 10 hours before the deadline. And he told the agents, he said, listen, this is... Uh, this deal is not done unless we get a contract done first. And so Howie Roseman had it in the back of his mind. We know that we can pull out of this if we don't get a deal done. And Paul, everybody uh, said, boy, four years, $100 million, that's a lot of money. Probably fair. Here's the way I look at it, though. A.J. Brown has one year left on his contract right now. The 2020-2022 season at $4 million. So it really, in my, to my way of thinking, the Philadelphia Eagles are committed to A.J. Brown, five years, $104 million, basically $20.8 million a year. And to me, to my way of thinking, you paid a lot in draft capital for A.J. Brown, but you're getting him, in my opinion, for a pretty reasonable amount of money. $20.8 million a year in his prime as we see the numbers for all the wide receivers sort of explode. And I think it, it really makes sense to me when, when I think about what I saw from the Eagles in the second half of last year, Peter, and also the last time we saw him. It was kind of a lifeless loss in Tampa uh, to Tom Brady and the Buccaneers in playoff time. Listen, they became a playoff team last year because of their running game. It was one of the best, if not the best, in the NFL. While that was going on, you have all these questions. Is Jalen Hurts really the guy? Is our passing game really this poor? And it really showed up in that playoff loss in Tampa. So this kind of pick, and your details there are great on how the business side of it works out. But on the field, if, if Philadelphia can maintain this really, really good running game and take a passing game that was kind of non-existent when it mattered most and just make it average – you know, it's not going to be the equivalence of their running game, but if it can be a much stronger supplement based off of what we saw in the playoffs than what it was last year, then then this is exactly why you make that kind of move. And I, I really like the thinking, again, based off of how their offense played out last year. 
I I just I just like uh, general managers, and I like teams that are aggressive. I like what the Lions did. The Lions were aggressive in this draft, and I like what uh, the Eagles did in this draft. Um, and look, it, when you have some significantly high picks like the Giants and Jets did, you know you're probably going to like what they did too. But I think these two teams. Re- one of the reasons I wanted to talk about them is that. They basically were aggressive, and I think they ended up uh, better at the end of draft weekend than they were at the beginning of draft weekend. Paul, um, so I ended up being in the Baltimore Ravens draft room uh, for the fourth round of this draft. The reason I did this this year is because it was a weird year for the draft. It wasn't a real sexy draft at the top. Uh, and I thought that what distinguished this draft is that there were a lot of players in this draft who stayed in college after the COVID season of 2020 and made this draft richer because in 2021, more draft prospect players were coming out in the draft. And so... As, as one general manager said to me when I was preparing to do this, there will be many players picked in the fourth round this year who a year ago, that caliber of player was all over the third round because there was a lesser, deep, lesser depth in 2021 than there was in 2022. So I decided, I looked into it, I asked the Ravens, uh, if I could be in their draft room just to witness it, I explained why, went back and forth a little bit, had some conversations. Finally, they agreed. So that's where I was. And it was funny. The challenge in writing about this was that you're writing about six players who nobody knows. How can you make that an interesting thing on a weekend that there's a lot of star power because there is in every draft? I don't know. I... You wrote to me and you said, "Hey, I really have a few questions for you about this. I want you to I want you to take the floor. I'll answer your questions about this, but that's basically why I ended up in Baltimore on Saturday afternoon." Uh Peter, good intro there. I will pick it up. Uh, I'll take it and run. And I, I I picked out a line that you wrote in your article yesterday morning that I think is is in sync with what you just said. You know, somewhere near the top of, of your lead about the Ravens, you said, I need to make you want to read about a team's fourth round. And, and to me, there are a couple of things that number one, let's look at the Rams and the team that wins the Super Bowl to copycat league. They always set the example, Peter, they have 10, 10 of their own draft picks that they took in rounds three, four, and five that are starters. So I'm including rounds three, including rounds five. But the point is teams that are really good, knock it out of the park right now in the mid rounds. And so you have the Ravens with six picks in rounds four. They expect these to be contributors or starters. And the team that's set in the lead from the top shows us that's exactly what ought to happen. Uh, That's one. And number two, the Ravens have a way, Peter. I mean, it's been Ozzie Newsome, Eric DaCosta for decades now, and it's a way that works. So what you were able to see wasn't some aberration. It's it's a it's a style in the draft room on draft day that worked five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, and you got to be right there and see it while they had this most active 
middle round in the history of the NFL. So six picks in the fourth, Peter. Uh, let's just start at the top. What made the biggest impression on you from the way the Ravens went about their business? Paul, uh, you know, having never been in the Ravens draft room and not, and, and knowing their people, okay, but not, you know, not to this level where I've ever actually seen them do their jobs. What interested me most was the preparation and also when they had something bad happen, how they responded. And and I'll, I'll give you an example. I sat with Eric DaCosta for 45 minutes on the morning of the fourth round and he kind of went through exactly what they were trying to do in this draft. The three players that they had, that they had isolated on going into the fourth round, one was Daniel Fa'alele, a tackle, a mountainous tackle from Minnesota. Two was a cornerback from Alabama named Jalen Armour Davis. Uh, Heard a bunch in college, but... He had the speed and he he has the tools that they really like. And the third one was a tight end from Iowa State. This is a big tight end offense named Charlie Kolar. And so DaCosta left, entered the room that day, entered the draft room thinking the best thing that could happen is if we stay right where we are and we get these three guys. And so that happened. That was a good thing. For them, obviously. But then what was really interesting is that two picks after they take Kolar, they announce Jordan Stout, punter, Penn State. I had no idea that he was going to be their pick. And I said, wow, that's early to take a punter. And so I just kind of put that in my hip pocket. And their next pick after 130 was 139. And at 139, as it turned out, you could, you could hear in the room and you could see that they were, they were focused on the top-rated wide receiver that they had left on their board, okay? The top-rated wide receiver they had left on their board at that moment was a guy named Calvin Austin III, a Smurfy wide receiver, but who ran a 4-3-something from Memphis. And so... As the picks went on, 132, 130, he was still there. Calvin Austin was there. So they get to 138 where the Steelers are picking. And now they're just on the doorstep and they just have to wait. And the little tinny speaker in the room that they were connected to NFL draft headquarters and allowed them to hear, you know, the play-by-play of what was going on. Number 138, Pittsburgh. Steelers select Wide receiver, Calvin Austin III, Memphis. And a voice came out of the room. The first voice was, you got to be bleeping kidding me. And right at that moment, I looked at the three men at the head of the table. Eric DaCosta, Ozzie Newsom, John Harbaugh. And, you know, I don't know what I expected. Would I have been surprised one of them pounded the table or one of them said whatever, but nothing. It was 
like no reaction whatsoever. It was like, you're on the clock, move on, let's discuss our next alternative. And it was clearly a tight end slash wide receiver from Coastal Carolina named Isaiah Lively. So right away, the conversation, Harbaugh asked uh, the offensive coordinator, Greg Roman, hey, can you find a spot for, for Lively? Can we use him? Yeah, we can use him. You know, scouts uh, talking back and forth a little bit about it. And so DaCosta said, hey, we're taking Isaiah Live, Live, Lively. He gets on the phone with him, shoots the breeze with him for a minute, and that's it. And again, I don't know what I expected, but they just simply moved on to the next pick. And I thought my one overriding memory of the day will be getting socked in the gut by your arch rival for the last receiver on the board that you truly wanted and you get socked in the gut. And then what happens? What's the next thing that happens? You've got to make a pick in like four and a half minutes. So let's just move on. And that was really kind of a cool thing that I noticed about the Ravens draft. Reminds me of something Brian Billick told me about the, the Vikings draft rooms that the late Denny Green would always say. He would tell everybody, you better like a lot of guys. Don't, don't love a few. Don't, don't like, you know, quite a few. Like a lot of guys because a lot of them are going to go and you got to move on to the next one. In that situation, and I had this jotted down here, when that happened, the guy you want, he goes. You've got four and a half or five minutes to make a call. And you mentioned the coaches a little bit. I wondered about this particular situation, and I've wondered um, for years about this. And I know every draft room works a little bit differently, but how much interaction, when everybody's surprised, how much interaction is there with the coaches, with the coordinators? How much of a say do they get to have in this conversation that's got to come together very quickly? By that time, they've already had most of their discussions, Paul. So they know at that moment... And the one thing I couldn't do is I couldn't list the grades of the players. That was one agreement I had with them. But I could, I basically said that this was the, the receiver that they wanted. They already got the tight end that they wanted. But at that particular moment, they wanted a potential offensive weapon. And they didn't have a running back who they loved right at that place no receivers that they really loved and so Isaiah Lively was the uh was their next guy and Isaiah Likely excuse me but I'll tell you what was really kind of interesting at that moment because as DaCosta told me later uh when I was leaving after their last pick he he said to me when I asked him about losing out on Calvin Austin, he just shrugged and he said, that's the draft because we do that to teams too. You know, we've had it done to us over the years, but here was the interesting thing. One of the things we don't think about that much is, okay, you've got the 141st pick in the draft and you know, is there a player you really like right now? Probably not. You know, is there a player you're sure is going to make your team and be a starter? Probably not. 
So what do you do at that point? And I thought it was really, really interesting how DaCosta handled the last pick of the draft. The guy who he wanted was a guy who one of his national scouts, uh, David Blakely, David Blackburn, excuse me. David Blackburn had come into his office that week and campaigned for Demarion Williams, a cornerback from Houston. Demarion Williams, a 4.52 guy in the 40. And you're going to draft a corner and you're going to line him up next to Jamar uh, on Jamar Chase. And, you know, I mean, it's a mismatch. And why would you do that? Because when you're at this point of the draft, you're drafting traits. You're drafting a two-year captain in Demarion Williams. You're drafting who in his coach's eyes uh, was the most competitive player on the team on either side of the ball. Uh, The best leader they had had in their program. All of these things that you're doing and, and a guy who absolutely loves football. So those things count when you get to 141. Demarion Williams, I will be shocked if he doesn't make this team and have a role, probably mostly on special teams, but I will bet that he'll be active a lot in 2022 and he will have a role at some times in the regular defense and he'll make some plays. So... All the time I'm thinking, man, who's left at 141? It is a traits player. And, I mean, really every team, the the good, the average, and the bad, they have uh, at least one. A lot of teams have more than one. You know, pick late round, last round pick who ends up being a pretty good player. But, Peter, I'm, I'm going to assess your, your observational and reporting skills here just a little bit. Look around me. Did you see anything in, in my background that's that's new? Or, or here just because of something I saw in your article over the weekend. I see a giraffe, Paul, and I wonder why that's there. <laughs> I saw I saw it in your article. I saw you had a picture <laughs> of this exact same giraffe. I recognize it from my youngest son's room uh, that Baltimore GM Eric DaCosta brings in there uh, because he wants people to feel like they can stick their neck out and have an opinion there are so many kind of lower to mid-level people involved in the draft game year-round. So many scouts, um, those in personnel. I, I, I love that sentiment. And I wondered if, if you saw anything, any kind of conversations or people speaking up from corners of that draft room that were sticking their necks out a little bit and wanted their opinions heard. At one point, John Harbaugh said to one of the uh, data analysts, um, a woman who DaCosta is very high on. Um, uh, I think she went to Carnegie Mellon, but she's become a valued member of their organization as everybody was in that room. Harbaugh went to her specifically and said, hey, do you like this pick? And she said, yeah. And they talked back and forth a bit. But I think... What has happened, Paul, like I said a little bit earlier, most of these decisions are already made by the time they get in the draft room. They know what they're going to do if they get uh, robbed out of Calvin Austin. They have a pretty good idea 
who is going to be on the board late in the round and what traits these people are going to have that they are going to love. So guys like David Blackburn, you know, the scout who loved Marion Williams, DaCosta handed the phone to David Blackburn and had him talk to Demarion Williams after the pick was made. That was kind of a cool thing. And uh, Ozzie Newsome was handed the phone after the Alabama corner comes on, gets picked. And he goes, hey, Jalen, roll tide. And so there were a lot of little good interactions. And, but there was sort of, Paul, I would call it a respectful silence that was in the room for most of the draft. In fact, very, very little because everything happened. They made six picks in 95 minutes. So there wasn't a lot of time to fart around in there. Uh, And, you know, because they were always sort of looking at the next pick coming up pretty soon. So it was, it was pretty much, I'd say it was pretty much all business the whole time I was in there. Yeah, I I think you bring up a great point, Peter, that uh, probably all draft rooms have this in common. It's more, it's more purposeful than tense because of what you brought up. All the really hard work is done in the weeks and months leading up. They have a plan. Again, they have a lot of players they like and, you know, come draft day. It's probably not fun, but it's uh, I would I would hope there's a sense of enjoyment in there that they're getting to put all that year's work into play. And uh, if they're prepared, there's no reason for it to be anything other than purposeful and businesslike. Paul, it's been fun to bat everything around. Uh, We uh, have a couple more podcasts to go, I think three more uh, before I take my little summer break. But um, I want to thank you, as always, uh, for being such a valuable part of the show. And um, I look forward to, I thought maybe in the next couple of pods, we can really take a couple of dives into specific teams, teams that have really changed this offseason. I know I want to talk about Denver. Uh, I'm really, really interested in the Broncos. So we're going to talk about some of the teams that, we haven't spent a lot of time on, uh, and but who have had franchise-changing off-seasons. And we'll do that in the next couple of weeks as we get ready uh, to transition into training camp preparedness. And, you know, it's crazy. It's only about 10 weeks away now. But, Paul, thanks so much for joining me this week, and thanks for joining me every week on the Peter King Podcast. big money on everything for your spring projects at menards we have all of your garden and landscaping essentials master garden premium garden soil contains a slow release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months it produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs say big on menards great selection of garden and landscaping products compare brands in store or online at menards.com save big